Women who were prescribed hormonal birth control were, had higher odds of both suicide attempts and successful suicide um, relative to uh, women who were, who were never users of hormonal birth control. And again, they found the risk to be the greatest among adolescent women. Um, and so this just tells us that we need to really be uh, mindful of these risks, particularly when we're talking about young women who are going on these uh, prescriptions. Um, so that way we can look out for them in case they are one of those women um, who is sensitive um, to the mood-related side effects that they can that they can cause. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very excited today to be joined from Fort Worth in Texas, uh, Professor Sarah Hill. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's, I'm really excited about this. I just recently audibled your book, if that's a, a word, um, your, your Brain on Birth Control, which I think you released a, a couple of years ago. But mm-hmm. um yeah, there's a lot of people interested in, in your work, and I think it's really fascinating. So we're here today to discuss the probably the the subtle and I think up until now really probably unrecognised or un sort of um, broadcasted um, notion that the the birth control can have profound um, effects on women's brains. So I wanted to do a, a deep dive into that today. So to jump into it. Looking at your story, it feels like there's sort of two parallels going on. You as a sort of a, a user of the op, on, uh, the contraceptive pill, but also starting to work in this space, particularly this evolutionary psychology space. And at some point, I think the I, I don't know if it was a, a hard epiphany or you yeah, sort of reflected back, but um, you saw some links between the use of the being on and off the pill and brain function. So. As that as a sort of two parallels, can you describe your background and also your, your journey in that sort of recognition? There's a connection there. Sure, absolutely. So you know, I am uh, an evolutionary psychologist. So I spent um, my research career um, really interested in understanding uh, the sort of biological and evolutionary foundations of of human behavior. Um, and and I've been I've spent most of my research career studying women and trying to better understand uh, women's motivational states. So for example, trying to understand like uh, romantic partner choice and attraction and sexual behavior and um, all of this uh, specifically looking at, um, you know, women, right? Because, um, you know, being an evolutionary scientist, we're sort of deeply uh, entrenched in this idea of, you know, men and women are gonna be different from one another in, in, you know, some, some important ways. Um, and so that was sort of the focus of my research. Um, and uh, during my you know, graduate school years and then uh, my early and in, in mid-career, um, you know, I was on hormonal birth control um, and, and it was something I never really put any thought into. Um, and so I was doing, you know, the research that I do and studying women and uh, studying biological influences on women. Um, and I'd even published a couple of papers looking at the effects of women's sex hormones on things like uh, partner attraction 
and uh, and um, and sort of like mating related motivation, right? So like women's um, uh, interest in attracting partners. And so it's like I, I had this like really you know intellectual awareness of the effects of hormones on women and you know how they can really influence a women's experience of the world. Um, but at the same time, I was taking hormonal birth control, which of course changes a woman's profile of sex hormones. And I never really put two and two together, right? I, I never thought about the idea that the birth control pills that I was taking to pre- prevent myself from getting pregnant um, might also be influencing how I experience the world. Um, and so these things are kind of going on in parallel. And then about, gosh, I don't know how many years ago it was now, but um, it's it's been at it's been at least a decade, probably eleven or so years, twelve years. Um, I went off of hormonal birth control, and so I, I discontinued uh, using it. And and I didn't discontinue it because I was having terrible side effects. Um, I was I was on it off you know off and on for short periods of time, but I, I was on it pretty steadily for um, about eleven or twelve years. I mean, I never really had any you know terrible side effects because some women will have problems mm. with mental health and that sort of thing. And I never really seemed to have any of that. Um, but then uh, I went off of it. And I just, uh, within about three months of, of discontinuing it, I just started to feel really different. Um, like I felt like I woke up and sort of like the way that I describe it in the book is, you know, I felt like I had been living in this like black and white line drawing of my life. And all of a sudden I was like, you know, sort of like climbing out of the page into this like colorful three-dimensional world um, where everything just felt more colorful, meaningful, um, emotionally laden, exciting. Um, I just, I I just felt more alive. And uh, so I, I had this experience going off of it. And then I started to, you know, put, you know, put two and two together and make the connections behind the idea that, you know, uh, hormones influence women's brains and that influences how we feel. And, um, and so of course, going off of hormonal birth control, which was changing what my hormones would normally be doing, um, is going to change how I feel. And so that was what really, um, guided me or into the land of the research into, um, the effects and like, what are the different relationships that researchers have been observing between hormonal birth control pill use and then the, what, what's going on in women's brains and the way that they think, feel and experience the world. Um, and once I began to dive into that research, I was really shocked to learn that, you know, people have been publishing on the relationship between uh, pill use or hormonal birth control use um, and different types of psychological outcomes for several decades. Mm. Um, but it just wasn't anything that, you know, most people have any visibility on. You know, here I was a, a researcher um, who studies women and studies hormones and psychology and I was on the pill and I didn't know about any of it. And so um, it occurred to me, you know, if I don't know anything about any of this stuff, then chances are that most other people don't know anything about this stuff either. And that was what uh, motivated me to really to sit down and write that book. Yeah. And what's the the response? Because, yeah, uh, that's what many things struck me in the book. It was a really well written but one thing that stood out was, as you mentioned, the volume of, of data that was already existing and you've continued to add to, as I understand. Um, so what was the response like from, well, what's it been from people to, to read this book that synthesized it and condensed it all? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because um, I was I was not sure how it was going to be received um, because um, especially in the U.S. and I don't know how things are in Australia, so I, I'm I'm curious to get your if you have any visibility on this. Um, but in the in the U.S., uh, there's a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, almost defensiveness or protectiveness about the birth control pill. Um, and, and, you know, and it makes a lot of sense given, you know, the, this very fragile state of women's reproductive autonomy in our country, um, where women are very, you know, we're very protective of things that allow us to um, sort of choose the, the timing of, of reproduction mm -hmm. and, and be allowed mm -hmm. to make those types of choices. And, uh, you know, in this, um, and the book, of course, came out before the, the, the decision with uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned. Uh, right. Um, but I, I was still concerned that, that that there was going to be some pushback from people who um, sort of perceived my critical look at the pill as being something that was, you know, sort of overly diagnostic or something that is saying that that this is bad and and women shouldn't have the pill and women shouldn't go on the pill. And um, and and so I was a little bit nervous that it that I was going to get some pushback that way. Um, I was really heartened to find out, like after you know the book came out, um, I, I didn't get very much of that. Um, so for the most part, the the um, the response has been very overwhelmingly positive. Um, and 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 you know, and I and I think that um, part of that is I like to think that I did a good job of really being very objective in the way that I was presenting information. Um, because at no point in the book do I take the position either that people should or should not be using hormonal birth control, because I think that that's such an individual choice. Yeah. Um, and the book is just really about providing women with information that they can use to then make an informed decision about whether they want to use hormonal birth control. Um, and, you know, and for some women, uh, the answer, you know, even after taking everything into consideration that I present in the book, for some women, the answer is going to be, yeah, it makes sense for me to be on hormonal birth control. And for other women, it, it will make not make sense. And so yes. it's just really about providing information. And so I think that, um, you know, the the uh, po positive response that I've gotten is is in part because of, of that in my um, not sort of staking, you know, putting my... Mm this to the table and saying like, you should not be on this or you should be on this. Um, and so it's been very positive. And I, and I think, you know, it's, it's the, it's becoming increasingly salient to women um, because I think that two things are happening culturally. And one of those is that, you know, I think that women nowadays, um, so this, this like newer generation of women, so women who are currently in their, in their teens, twenties and, you know, thirties, um, are, are a lot more um, savvy about mm. what they're putting in their bodies than women of my generation were, right? So I'm, in, I'm 44. And, you know, for me, if my doctor gave me a prescription, which, you know, they would do, I, I would just assume everything was fine. I would take it, you know, and I wouldn't think yeah. anything yeah. of it. Um, and, uh, and women are different now. It's like, the, you know, it's like we're, you know, women now are demanding that you put information on your tampons about what's in them, like what type of cotton, you know, and that's stuff that people, like I never would, would have even thought of. And it's like, what mm -hmm. a, of course we want to know that. Like that's great information to have. And so I think that that, there, that that's going on that's making people receptive to really thinking about these issues. Um, and then also, you know, as we 
um, are entering into this landscape, at least here in the U.S., where, um, you know, women's uh, right to choose is being um, under fire and a lot of different coming from a lot of different directions. Um, you also were at this time uh, politically here where, um, you know, it's become even more important for women um, to uh, to be protecting themselves from pregnancy, just given that we've sort of um, in some states, women are losing their reproductive autonomy. Yeah. Yeah, well, it certainly is not as um, heated or politicized over here in Australia. But yeah, even from a distance, I can see it all unfolding. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting to say the least. Um, but I th- yeah, one of the things from my, I can't speak for Australia, but perspective was, as you mentioned, um, it is very objective and balanced. And um, we'll, we'll dive in in a moment. And if you didn't listen to this first part you, and heard the second part, you could take away that the pill is you know you should no one no woman should ever be on the pill but yeah i agree that it was really objective it was very fun to read as well listen to but objective and and also i really enjoyed the discussion around the benefits of the pill like what it's done for women and how it's potentially changed the world sometimes for better maybe sometimes you know for worse there's trade-offs as an evolutionary biologist and psychologist it's often about trade-offs right and it was just good to sort of hear that in the context and it's really thought-provoking no provoking so um yeah well done it's yeah it's really as you said neutral and um giving people the information for them to make the right choice and and nuance as well like that and we'll probably get into the type of pill the timing and lots of the stuff so yeah so before we dive into um the effects of the pill I just wanted to, you mentioned you do have a background in evolutionary psychology, which to understand how the pill works in the brain, we need to understand, you know, how the brain works from an evolutionary perspective and also the female brain and what it's sort of hardwired or the first draft as, as women come out into the world, what some of the almost subconscious forces are going on in, in their brain that um, fluctuates with the cyclic hormones. So can you describe your sort of framework around evolutionary psychology and, and sort of women's motivations? So taking an evolutionary perspective on uh, trying to understand women's brains is really um, all about trying to understand what are the adaptive challenges uh, that human women have had to solve over the course of evolutionary time in order to successfully pass down their genes. Um, and, you know, for a, a, mam- a mammalian female, which of course humans are, um, this is all about making decisions that are going to be associated with um, doing things that increase, you know, sort of the, the quality of your kids, right? So choosing partners who have like good genes and healthy genes. Um, but then also it's going to be about um, choosing partners who are investing and, you know, willing to help care for offspring and that sort of thing, because we know that human infants come into the world very um, unable to care for themselves and they require a lot of investment from uh, from parents. And so, you know, understanding what the female brain is and does is a lot about um, the types of decisions that we've had to make being this organism that has to invest a lot in the production of offspring um, and, uh, and, and, you know, in, in, in understanding um, the role that our uh, sex hormones play in terms of um, guiding our behavior in ways that's going to help us to make wise partner choice and then also be able to, um, in order, and also be able to, uh, to reproduce. And so, you know, uh, understanding 
all of that uh, I think is really important in terms of being able to understand the effects of the birth control pill um, because the birth control pill uh, disrupts or suppresses the activities of our HPG axis, which is the brain ovary axis that um, guides the, the maturation of an egg every month, which then of course leads to the uh, release of estrogen and then subsequently progesterone, which are our two major sex hormones. Um, and you know, understanding what estrogen and progesterone are designed to do. So evolutionarily, why do we have these hormones in the first place? Like, why do we have two different sex hormones in the first place? What does each one do? Um, and, and we need to understand that before we can understand what the birth control pill does, because the birth control pill disrupts all of that. And then, you know, and, and so it gives us a starting point. And so for me, you know, in the book, I spend a lot of time just sort of un unpacking for women and, and readers, for men too, just uh, what you know, what does estrogen do? What does progesterone do? And, uh, you know, and, and estrogen is a hormone that peaks for women early on. Uh, it begins to peak early on in their cycle. So if we look at uh, women's cycles as being something that lasts 28 days, which is like sort of the average length of a menstrual cycle, um, the first day of that cycle is the day that bleeding begins in the period. And that's like why doctors always ask you, like, what was the first day of your last period? It's because mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out where you are in your cycle. And starting around day five, you start to see an increase in estrogen levels um, that's corresponding with the maturation of egg follicles that are going on at this time. So this is the time when the brain is telling the ovaries to start maturing egg follicles so that way an egg can get released which is the ovulatory event or ovulation. Um, so that way, you know, the possibility of pregnancy can occur. And so between days five and usually around day 14 is when women ovulate, um, the egg follicles are maturing, the dominant follicle continues to mature, and then um, it's releasing estrogen. And during that time, estrogen levels get higher and higher and higher and higher um, until the point that the egg is then released Right. And then um, the empty egg follicle um, actually becomes a temporary endocrine structure called the corpus luteum. And it begins then releasing the sex hormone progesterone. And so when we look at a woman's cycle, um, we can really divide it into two halves. We can divide it into the first half, which is like day one to day 14, when estrogen is the dominant hormone. And again, this hormone is being released in preparation for this egg being released. Um, and then the second half of the cycle, which is um, dominated by the sex hormone progesterone, which gets released from that empty egg follicle, right? And that lasts about 14 days. And, um, and at that point, after ovulation has occurred um, and progesterone is high, that's a point in the cycle when sex is no longer conceptive, right? So the estrogen dominant phase of the cycle um, is usually associated with um, you know, types of psychological, behavioral, and physiological changes that help to promote sex and conception. So, for example, we know from a lot of research that um, when estrogen levels are increasing, um, this is something that makes women appear more attractive to men. It makes them smell more attractive to men. It makes their voices sound more attractive to men. It makes them more flirtatious. It increases their sexual desire. It's essentially rolling out all the stops physiologically, behaviorally, and psychologically um, to help promote the possibility of attracting a partner and then having sex with that partner during a time when pregnancy is possible.
right? And pregnancy is possible um, during what they call the periovulatory window, which is usually about five or so days before ovulation and then within 24 hours of an egg being released, right? And so essentially when we think about estrogen, you can think about that as being a, a you know, I always call it like, like, a, like a sex kitten hormone, right? <laughs> Where it's like trying to, it's like unleashing all of these, you know, hidden talents that we have um, that increase our attractiveness to partners and then also um, increase the probability that we're actually going to have sex. Um, uh, progesterone, on the other hand, this other hormone that is dominant for the second two weeks of our cycle, um, it's associated with a whole different set of activities, right? Because once progesterone is being released, sex is no longer something that is conceptive. And so it's like, doesn't, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be doing things or having these physiological experiences that make you more attractive to men um, when sex that you would have with those men doesn't matter anyway, evolutionarily. And so progesterone actually is associated with, you know, uh, things like uh, sort of sleepiness and hungriness. So, think, you know, it makes us less interested in sensation seeking. It makes us want to kind of stay home, be safe, rest up, have a snack, right? And essentially do things that are going to facilitate um, implantation. So of a, a fertilized embryo if that, if that, or a fertilized egg or an embryo, if that's what um, has happened if you've actually um, had that happen. Um, and then also just preparing your body for the possibility of pregnancy. So um, resting up, conserving bodily resources, and um, and also having a snack because <laughs> calories <laughs> are always a good thing um, in that context. And so for a naturally cycling woman, what you tend to see is this waxing and waning between these two dominant hormonal states. You know, as the estrogenic phase of the cycle, which is generally the first two weeks of the cycle, right, where women tend to have a lot of energy and they have a lot of sexual desire and they look and feel and smell attractive to men. Um, and then the second half of the cycle where women are less interested in sex, um, are sort of less interested in like going out and being flirtatious and outgoing and a little bit more interested in staying in, um, you know, having having some rest, having calories um, and, and taking care of themselves. And so you see this waxing and waning between these two states. Um, and understanding that is really important um, in terms of understanding what the birth control pill does, because in order to know sort of where we went, we need to know where we started, right? And so naturally cycling women, that's like the natural sort of state of, of affairs in terms of what's going on for us hormonally. And then when you take the birth control pill, essentially what you're doing is you're taking this daily dose of these synthetic hormones um, and the hormonal profile of hormonal birth control is generally such that it has relatively high levels of this synthetic progesterone or what's called a progestin and then really low levels of synthetic estrogen um, and uh, taking this daily dose of hormones suppresses um, the activities of the, the brain ovarian axis, because essentially it's sending a message to the brain that says, hey, over, or, pardon me, it sends a message to the ovaries that says like, hey, ovaries, uh, no need to mature any egg follicles right now because progesterone is being released, which means that we just released an egg and we're waiting to see whether or not um, we got pregnant. And so that, you know, the, the presence of progesterone particularly progesterone at a higher level than estrogen is a signal that that tells the brain to not stimulate the ovaries to produce eggs. And that's how the pill prevents um, pregnancy. Um, but that's also 
um, how the pill changes us psychologically because essentially it's removing the cyclicity from our hormones and we never get to experience that estrogen dominant state. And instead we're sort of stuck in this hormones on replay sort of state that's um, really dominated by, um, by this synthetic progesterone or progestin. Yeah. Um, great summary. Uh, and just want to plug your book more. Um, there's great evidence in the both uh, interesting and <laughs> often entertaining evidence in the book that um, supports this idea of the, 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 the sort of polarity of the, the two phases of the cycle. So with that in mind, then, um, what's some of the ramifications of um, a woman being on the pill, say, um, attracting a partner or um, if they've been on a pill, sorry, they're off the pill, they um, have... Uh, uh, I was going to say hooked up, hooked up with a partner and, and together, and now they're in a long-term relationship, and they go on. She mm. goes in the pill, um, changing into that sort of progesterone-dominant state. What's without that interruption of the estrogen? What's some of the ramifications of being in this sort of flatline state? Right. You know, it's really interesting because for um, more than three decades now, researchers have been documenting this idea that um, women's levels of estrogen are related to um, some partner preferences and you know some specific partner preferences. And in particular, what this research finds is that when estrogen levels are relatively high, that women exhibit a heightened preference for qualities that we tend to think of as being sort of sexy in men. Um, so for example, we know that estrogen levels in women are predictive of their preference for testosterone markers in their partners. So they tend to find ma um, men with more masculinized faces more attractive um, when estrogen is high compared to when estrogen is low. We also know that women are also more interested in sort of behavioral and vocal cues uh, to uh, masculinity, right? So things like social dominance and like a deep voice. Um, women find more sexy at um, high fertility when, when estrogen is high compared to when estrogen is low. And, you know, so this research had been going on for, like I said, about two to three decades. Um, and it was only very recently that researchers asked that question that you just asked, which is, okay, well, if we know that estrogen is linked with these specific partner preferences, what happens when we keep estrogen low all the time, like you do on the birth control pill? Like, might it be the case that women who are on hormonal birth control might, you know, exhibit less of a preference for these types of markers and their partners relative to what's observed in natural cyclers. And what the research seems to indicate is that lo and behold, um, women who are on birth control pills do seem to um, exhibit a preference for less masculinized male faces um, relative to what is observed in uh, naturally cycling women. So they've done different studies where they've looked at um, women's preferred face. So like having them do like on a sliding scale, like from a less masculine male face to a more masculine male face, that when women um, use hormonal birth control, that their preference shifts from over here toward the more masculine and a little bit this way toward a slightly more feminine face. And they've also done studies where they looked at women's partners. So they, they selected, um, a, they just randomly uh, selected a population of men who were in relationships. And then they asked the men after taking their photograph 
you know, did, did you and your partner begin your relationship when you were on or when she was on or off of hormonal birth control, right? And they had verification from the man's partner about her hormonal birth control status when the part, when the relationship initiated. And then they just divided the men's photographs into two piles, right? The faces of men who were chosen by partners who were on the pill and the faces of men who were chosen by women who were off of it. And then they um, had uh, outside raters evaluate the masculinity of the faces, like how masculine is in the face. And then they also use some different biomarkers of masculinity. There's certain things that you can measure in terms of face, um, width to height, and a few other things that are like indicative of exposure to prenatal levels of testosterone. And um, what they found is that for women, that the, that the pile of photographs um, of men's faces that were chosen by the pill takers, those faces were uh, less masculine as viewed by outsiders. And then also using the more objective criteria relative to the faces of uh, men who were chosen by partners who were naturally cycling or off of hormonal birth control. And these aren't like huge differences. Like if I showed you the average mm -hmm. facial composite of these different faces, you wouldn't think like, oh my goodness gracious, you know, we're all like, turning into a difference, you know, whatever, it's totally crazy. Um, but, but there are, but there are differences. And so that of course, um, I mean, it's very provocative, just this idea that your hormonal birth control might, you know, sort of nudge your preferences one way or the other, um, is something that of course, you know, is, is pretty meaningful to a lot of people as they're thinking about their partner choice. Um, and it's particularly meaningful, um, in relationship to the, uh, to the question of, you know, as you noted, like what happens if you chose your partner when you were on the pill, right? And then you go off of it, right? So if, if it's true that, um, that, that, that being on hormonal birth control might have this effect of, of changing or Im impacting who we're attracted to, if we're on it and we pick our partner and then we go off it, then are we no longer attracted to our partner? And, um, and so there's been some research that's begun to investigate this, um, and what the research seems to find, and it's a little bit, the results are, the results are mixed. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the, you know, one of the best um, and most carefully done studies looking at this issue, um, the researchers found uh, that the answer to whether or not women continue to be attracted to their partner, um, if they chose them when they were on the pill and then they go off of it, um, was one that the results found that the answer to that depended on whether um, the man that they chose as their partner was attractive. <laughs> and, <laughs> and essentially the idea here is that if you, um, you know, chose your partner and you were on the birth control pill, um, but you just so happened to choose somebody that was sexy anyway, right? Even though you right. might not be totally attuned to all of those things in the way that a naturally cycling woman is, that if that's who you choose as your partner, and then you go off of hormonal birth control, that you're actually more attracted to them, and your you know your sex life improves, and that's what they found. Women um, who chose their partner while on it and then go off of it, if they're partnered with somebody um, that is uh, evaluated by an outside group of raters as being physically attractive or sexy, um, those women report experiencing an increase in partner attraction, an increase in relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction after they discontinue the pill. But for women who are partnered with less attractive partners, um, you find the opposite. And you find that all of a sudden, it's like they are really attuned to the fact 
that their partner isn't as attractive, you know, as um, as they might now be attuned to now that they're naturally cycling and paying attention to those things. Um, and so, so there's there's been some evidence that suggests that it might um, impact that. We have a study that's going to be coming out um, in the next year because um, we're finalizing the the write-up of it right now. But we looked at data from um, a, a cycle tracking app called Natural Cycles, and they track cycles using basal body temperature. Um, and uh, and what we found is because what's great about this app is women log their sexual behavior. Right. So it, it's something that tells them what their basal body temperature is and like whether they're ovulating and or whether they're, you know, have ovulated and so on. Um, but in it, women can track their libido and also track um, whether or not they had sex that day. And what and, and we sent out a survey of their users asking them just simply whether or not they met their current partner while they were on or off of hormonal birth control. And what we find is that um, the women who report that they chose their partners while they were on hormonal birth control, um, that they're having less sex with their partner um, than the women who chose their partners while they were naturally cycling, which again sort of suggests this idea. And everybody in the study is naturally cycling at the time of the study, right? They're using natural cycles as birth control. So all of them are off of hormonal birth control now. But the women who, when they met their partner and chose their partner, um, chose them when they were using hormonal birth control there, even though they report comparable levels of libido. So the libido difference, there's no libido differences between the two groups of women. Um, the women who chose their partners while they were on the pill are having less sex with them, which is also consistent with the idea that it may um, lead women to sort of prioritize things that are less related to, you know, sort of like chemical attraction and instead yeah. prioritize things that are, are more related to maybe partnering qualities um, in the relationship, which is a, a really fascinating possibility. Wow. Um, the other hormone that I just wanted to touch upon with um, pill users, there was a discussion on testosterone levels are also affected uh, yes. in women on the pill. So can you describe that and again what some of the potential um effects of that are on um physiology and psychology yeah yeah sure so um so uh what what the research finds is that women who are on hormonal birth control you get a, a substantial decline in levels of free or unbound testosterone and so this is the testosterone that your body can actually use to like do things and uh and, and of note um, testosterone in women is linked with uh, sexual desire and sexual functioning. So we know that that's true just like it is in men. Um, and we also know that in women, um, just like it is in men, testosterone is um, linked with the ability to put on muscle mass um, and to be able to um, you know, have effective workouts. And, and what you find is that in women on the pill, um, you get about 60% lower levels of free testosterone. Um, and that's a big decline. I mean, if I told you that I was like, that you're going to have 60% less income or 60% mm. less chocolate cake, you know, we would all be really upset about it. <laughs> um, and, you know, the same is true with testosterone. Um, so we, we get a pretty steep decline in that. And the reason for that is when we take these synthetic hormones, our body releases a lot of sex hormone binding globulin, which is something that mops up all the excess hormones that our body doesn't need. Um, and the thing that it has the greatest binding affinity to is testosterone. 
And so it ends up binding up a bunch of our testosterone, lowering our testosterone levels. And this is something that is linked with reductions in libido and sexual functioning, which is something that's commonly observed among women who are using hormonal birth control. Um, and it's also something that is linked with um, reductions in, uh, in the ability to, um, to build muscle mass. And a new study just came out. I didn't write about this in the book because it's brand new. Um, just found that uh, women who are using hormonal birth control do put on less muscle mass from the exact right. same workouts than naturally cycling women. Right. And so um, that loss of testosterone sort of shoots us in the foot a couple of different ways. Interesting. And is there anything I, I can't remember in the book, anything on like drive, you know, testosterone, particularly like men, um, it's linked to, you know, career and drive and success yeah. and that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's such an interesting question. And, you know, I have not. Um, there was a paper that just came out. Uh, it was only like three months ago that just looked at competitiveness um, mm. So just like the degree to which women report feeling um, motivated to compete and win, kind of like what you're talking about, like with yes. drive. And um, and it was it was a pretty small. I mean, it was it was a study where they were just looking at self reports. So it was like women reporting on how much of that they're feeling. Um, and they did find that women who are using hormonal birth control um, do report having less of that, right? Less competitive sort of hunger. Um, than what you see in natural cyclers. I would love to see, I would love to see that replicated behaviorally because I, I think that you would is the is the the thing. Like mm -hmm. I think that there's definitely something there, um, and that we would find that pattern. Um, but yeah, there there's only been self-report data to that um, to that end. But I, but I would expect that that's what we would find. Interesting. Okay, I want to move on. There's, there's but wait, there's more as they say in the infomercials on the, all the hormones that tends to affect um, the HPA axis, the our our stress response. Some really yeah, fascinating and yeah, dare I say, it, alarming or pretty profound effects on the pill use and how much cortisol is secreted during stress. Can you describe that? Yeah. So normally when most of us are feeling stressed out, what will happen within about five minutes of feeling stress is our body will start to release the stress hormone cortisol. Um, and cortisol is, you know, even though it's got kind of a bad reputation, um, just because it is linked with stress, mm. um, it's something that's like really adaptive in the context of an acute stress response. So if you're feeling stressed out, um, and your body starts to release cortisol, some of the things that that does, that that hormone does, is it dumps fat and sugar into your bloodstream. So that way you have a lot of energy available, both for cognition, because our brain is a big glucose hog and requires a lot of um, energetic resources in order to be firing on all cylinders. And also just to allow us to make a fast getaway if we need to get away. So, you know, if we're being chased by a tiger, right, it's going to dump all that fat and sugar into our bloodstream so we can get get out of dodge. Um, the other thing that cortisol does, it also um, is, is responsible for the, the birth of new neurons in our hippocampus, which um, helps us to learn and remember things. And this is essentially is helping to take whatever the stressful event is. And stress can be both good and bad, right? So stress exactly. can be, yeah. you're being chased by a tiger, but it could also be your wedding day. You know, it's just something eventful or consequential. Um, and the, the birth of new neurons is essentially allowing you to encode that information, whether it's good or bad. So that way it becomes part of who you are and can shape your future experiences. 
And, um, and, and there's been research now since the 1990s uh, that finds that women who are using hormonal birth control have a different stress response um, than women who are not users. So most healthy, high, you know, functioning adults, when they're experiencing stress, get that cortisol release. Um, but among women who are users of hormonal birth control, what much of the research finds is that you don't get that release. And so they're not releasing cortisol. Um, and this is something that's really alarming because uh, this isn't something that you typically see in nature, um, except in populations of people who've experienced trauma mm. or severe stress. Because generally what will happen in the context of stress or trauma is the body, because it's experiencing so much stress, right? Chronic stress and trauma, where your HPA axis is constantly, you know, under fire, where it's like stress response, stress response, stress response, is your body ultimately will shut the stress response down because you can't afford to be, you know, investing all of the body's resources in managing a stress response. You can't be giving all the blood and, and you know, blood glucose and, and, and fat and triglycerides and everything to managing stress. Like your body needs to do other things too, like repair itself and, you know, um, protect itself from uh, pathogens and do all the other things our bodies needs to do. And so because of that, our body, if we're experiencing chronic stress, will shut stress, uh, shut cortisol release down. It just turns it off like a faucet um, because it's not good in, in the long term. It's, it, it, it's unmanageable for our body. And so the idea that pill takers are exhibiting the same pattern that we see in uh, people who've experienced chronic stress or trauma um, suggests that there might be something about hormonal birth control pill use that is initiating an overwhelming stress response in women that's ultimately leading their body to shut it down. Um, and to this date, there's not a lot of understanding about what that is, why it happens, or what the time course is under which it happens. Um, and so that's something that, you know, is uh, very much up in the air uh, in, 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 in the something that we need additional research on sort of moving forward. Okay, yeah. Uh, when I listened to that part of the book, it made me think of a little bit of the research I, I looked at on PTSD, how as I understand PTSD, people who develop PTSD, if they um, say it's an accident, they report to the emergency department, they measure their cortisol levels, often blunted. And I think they've administered cortisone and it's helped them extinguish those fears and things. It just maybe there sounds like a lot of similarities and maybe some differences, like women lose that sort of emotional uh, memory to the emotional salient or, you know, those, as you said, those memorable moments, but also could they be at risk of more, greater risk of PTSD? I, I don't know if there's been yeah. any research there. Yeah. 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 No, and I've heard, I've heard from uh, people who work in, in as therapists that they seem to get different types of responses in therapy, depending on hormonal birth control pill use. And wow. that they do seem to that they, and, and all of this is anecdotal. So, you know, this hasn't mm. been, uh, research hasn't been done on this, but um, I've, I've heard exactly what you just said. And I think that it's fascinating. And I think it's so important um, because it is something, especially if you're a woman who's, you know, suffered some sort of a trauma, um, even if you just go off your birth control temporarily, you know, like, like try, trying to, you know, when you're like, you know, with, with, with therapy and trying to extinguish some of, of those um, 
those experiences, I think, is something that could potentially be very therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. We're, um, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of time, but there's so much more to talk about. So just to, um, again, probably more than a whole podcast in itself, but um, moving on now to to mood. Um, yeah, that you describe some pretty fascinating and again, I hate to say it, alarming research, particularly in adolescence and, and mood um with the use of the the pill so can you describe yeah some of the the research that you you've looked at yeah so there's been a lot of sort of hot debate about um hormonal birth control and mood um with you know there being sort of some inconsistencies in different types Mm. of things but um the general uh pattern is that you know when you look at all of the research together the takeaway message is this using hormonal birth control um, can be associated with an increased risk of anxiety and depression um, and this seems to be something that affects some women and not others um, and so like one of the most monumental studies of of its time and one of the most important studies I would argue that's been done looking at hormonal birth control and its psychological consequences is the study that was done on the entire, you know, female population of Denmark, where they looked at whether or not a cohort of women who were ages 15 to 34, um, whether they were prescribed hormonal birth control, and then what was the risk of subsequently developing depression or anxiety um, after the fact. And what this research found was that for um, women who were prescribed hormonal birth control, that there was, um, in some cases, like a 200% increase and 300% increase in almost in some cases of uh, subsequently developing depression or anxiety. And they also found that the risk was greatest for adolescent women. So women who are ages 15 to 19, um, they seem to be the ones who are overwhelmingly shouldering the burden of psychological problems from their hormonal birth control pill use. Um, and when you look at these, um, the results of this study and then every other study that's been done really investigating the relationship between uh, birth control status and, and, um, and depression and anxiety, it does, you know, it seems clear that some women do have these experiences and especially adolescent women, um, but that it's not something that everybody experiences. Mm-hmm. It's one of these things that, you know, most of the effects that we find in pill users Um, tend to be idiosyncratic, you know, and we don't know the research isn't in a place where we can make good predictions about who's going to respond what way to what thing. Um, And so a lot of this, you know, and and the whole point of the book really is just understanding what the range of um, side, like known sort of side effects are. So that way people can really pay attention to themselves and then, you know, determine um, whether or not they might be at risk. and, 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 and especially when we're talking about something like depression and anxiety, I mean, they did a subsequent study looking at suicide risk, um, you know, and also finding that um, people who are women who are prescribed hormonal birth control were had higher odds of um, both suicide attempts and successful suicide um, relative to uh, women who were, who were never users of hormonal birth control. And again, they found the risk to be the greatest among adolescent women. Um, And so this just tells us that we need to really be uh, mindful of these risks, particularly when we're talking about young women who are going on these uh, prescriptions. um, So that way we can look out for them in case they are one of those women um, who is sensitive um, to the mood related side effects that they can that they can cause. Yeah. So as a segue, then 
your last chapter, I believe, uh, or towards the end, there was a, was a, a, a daughter to your, your le- um, a letter to your daughter in, um, in the future about weighing up the risks and benefits. And but also, what really struck me was the sort of self self reflection or assessment to to see the effects of of the pill to decide whether it's something they'd want to continue on with. So, um, can you describe because it is hard to monitor all this sort of stuff. Um, you talk about journaling, and there's a, about half a dozen questions that you propose that a, a woman should ask herself during or off the pill, and so forth, to get a bit of a sense. Can you describe why these techniques um, can be really valuable and what they are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in in my book, one of the things that I advocate for is um, what I call objective journaling. And objective journaling is essentially, you know, it's it's journaling um, where we're essentially keeping tabs on what's going on in our lives. Um, but I like the idea of using rating scales, um, to evaluate ourselves. <laughs> Always the researcher. I'm, yeah, because I'm a scientist and, um, <laughs> so I can't help myself. Um, and you know, it's like based on the research, um, we know that some women, for example, experience diminished libido on sec- on, on birth control pills. We know from the research that some women experience reduced sexual functioning on the birth control pill. We know that some women experience mood related changes, motivational changes, you know, and all of the different types of um, changes that I discuss in, in the book. You know, there's research that shows that this is a possibility for you. And so um, in the in the book, what I do is I essentially take those different categories of um, psychology and behavior that can be affected by the birth control pill. And I I ask women to reflect um, on themselves over a period of time. So let's say that you reflect on like every other day, you keep a journal where you ask yourself, like, how is my mood today? And then you rate it on like a one to 10 or one to seven scale, you know, like really bad to really good. And I love the idea of, you know, if a woman is transitioning on to the birth control pill, um, for example, to measure yourself for a month or so beforehand, and then measure yourself for a couple of months after you've started, and then see whether or not there are any differences in your mood, you know, for uh, how you felt when you were on it, or pardon me, when you were off of it, and then how you feel now that you're on it. And you can do that with the different domains that we know that the pill can affect, right? You can do that with libido, you can do that with energy levels, you can do that with food cravings. So essentially just outlining the different domains of influence, the things that we know that the pill can affect, um, and then rating yourself on how you're feeling in each of those domains over time. So that way you can actually make objective comparisons about whether it's making you feel better or feel worse in areas of your life that are important to you. And this is something that, you know, women can do when they're transitioning, you know, from going off the pill, like being naturally cycling to going on the pill. This is something that women can use um, when they're on the pill and then transitioning off of it to see if they feel better or worse when they go off. This is something they can use if they're switching pills, right? So um, you're going from one prescription to another, you can do this. But we can do this with anything, right? You can do that Mm. if you change your exercise routine. You can do it if you change your romantic partner, right? There's (laughs) all kinds of objective journaling is really great in terms of identifying, you know, landmarks of some sort and, and then like comparing how was I before and after this event and, um, and really, you know, sort of making note of things that way. Um, and I really got interested in this actually, because, um, I, I, I read my, my old journals. It's just like, 
I, it, it's useful to me to like see sort of where I've been and, you know, yeah. think about where I'm going. And, um, and I'm, and I'm always, I've, I used to think like, gosh, I wish I was rating this because I, it seems like I'm so much happier now that X, Y, Z, you know, like whatever it is, like, I'm so much happier now that I'm lifting weights, for example, like I just seem to have more energy. And it's like, I don't, and, and cause my, it seems like my mood is improved, you know, just based on what I'm writing, but I have no, I had no objective data. And that was what really got me into the idea of objective journaling. Okay. Um, yeah. And I like that idea that I think you mentioned earlier on about you tend to sort of, if you don't do this, you tend to sort of normalize your mood and it's like, I've always felt this way. So it's a, a hence objective. You do it during the time. And the other part that really struck me was, again, maybe it's that evolutionary psychologist in you, but the trade-offs, like you can document all these sort of problematic things, but the question you sort of asked, what what does that mean to you? Or, uh, you know, we have to look at the flip side of what cost. Like this, the pills obviously can prevent unwanted pregnancies or it might be managing skin or mood or um, periods and stuff. So I suppose just sort of weighing it up, it, you, just to actually use that throughout this, oh, yeah, you can – document all this and it could be all dim and gloom but you know there is some trade-offs and benefits here so yeah i yeah. suppose just reinforce that <laughs> yeah yeah no for sure i mean and, and all of it is it's like the idea of being able to protect yourself from pregnancy and not worry about it um and do it in a way that is convenient is relatively inexpensive and easy i mean it's great you know and and um you know, knowing everything that i know now um, I probably would have made the same decision I made when I made it, which, mm. you know, about being on it. Um, and it's because the uh, knowing for certain that you aren't going to get pregnant allows you to plan. And, um, and planning is what, you know, allows us to make big, crazy goals, right? And, and, and so, you know, just like getting a college degree going to graduate school or, you know, establishing a successful research lab. Nobody's going to start trying to do those things if they don't feel pretty certain that they're going to be able to finish. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and for a long time, you know, like for my grandmother and like great grandmother or whatever, making a, a goal like that would be absurd because, you know, there's a good chance that they would have ended up getting benched because of pregnancy midway through, you know, and it's like, no, so the whole idea of, you know, being able to make long-term plans um, has been so astronomically positive for women. And I think, you know, it's a big driver behind a lot of women's successes that we're seeing now in the educational sphere and in the work sphere. Um, and it's contributed to our economic and political independence. Um, and, you know, and for women who have um, uh, really severe PMS, it can be really uh, mood stabilizing. So even though, you know, among a lot of women, you get negative mood related side effects with the pill, some women, it's actually really beneficial. Um, and it, it sort of irons out some of the, the mood changes you get with naturally occurring hormonal fluctuations. And so, yeah, it's all about trade-offs and it's just about knowing like what, is what is the version of me like when I'm off the pill? What is the version of me like when I'm on it? Which one do I like better? And then what are the benefits that the pill provides? And then does it outweigh any of the costs? And um, I think like I think women are smart enough to be able to take all the information that's out there and then be able to make the right choice for themselves. And so it's just really about providing women with the information that they need um, in order to really make a thoughtful decision and an informed decision about what they want to put in their bodies or not. Perfect. Well said. Beautiful. All right. Well, 
yeah, that's a, a great synopsis of the, of the book. Um, yeah, as I said, I can't encourage people any more to read it. As I said, um, informative but really entertaining as well. It's a, like a yes. Sapolsky style of uh, <laughs> a writing. I really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, where can we get? Where can people find the book? Any any other resource you wanted to promote or discuss? Sure, sure. So the book is available anywhere that books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I don't know. Um, what your local uh, bookstores are there, but I'm sure that they've got it as well. Um, but it's um, your brain on birth control, how the pill changes everything um, is uh, is generally the way it is marketed in Australia. Um, in the US is marketed as this is your brain on birth control. Um, and so it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. You can find me um, online. I'm on um, Instagram and, and Twitter and everything else. And my handle is, um, Sarah E. Hill, PhD. And so that's Sarah with an H and that middle initial is E. And um, yeah, so you can find me there and you can also find me online at uh, sarahehill.com. Brilliant. And um, all things going well. We uh, hope to see you out at Australia next year for our Congress discussing this and, and much more. Yeah, I'm super excited. I can't wait. Well, Sarah, I really appreciate your time. It's um, yeah, it's great to hear from you. Uh, really fascinating, as I said, um, information, really important information and in a balanced way. So congratulations on the book and, and look forward to meeting you in person uh, next year. All right, great. Thanks. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.